0: So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Well, friends, I'm going to welcome you to turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah uh, chapter 43. And we're going to have one verse that we will move toward here in just the next few moments. It's uh, Isaiah 43, uh, verse 19. As you're making your way to Isaiah 43, verse 19, in in this room, I'm welcoming the rest of our church family who's worshiping in the Family Life Center, uh, welcoming you to join us in this conversation, and those who are watching uh, wherever you may be traveling, we welcome you when you're in town to be with us here. Uh, But today we continue in part four of a very important series. I've really been enjoying these conversations that we've been having, both on and off the sermon moment, about the fam, the fam. The last several weeks, we've been attempting to say some things about very real experiences that we, that we um, you and I together, share uh, as members of families. We have families of all different varieties, all kinds of backgrounds and traditions and ways of life, but there are some things that are so in common that you and, you and we all share that they're worth talking about. So a few weeks ago we talked about how we're all a little bit dysfunctional. If you do it really well, you put the fun in dysfunctional. <laughs> and, and we talked about how in the dysfunction of each of our families, there is, if we have the eyes to see it, an opportunity for God to be glorified in our weaknesses. In those places where we are imperfect and where we're, where we're Unfinished. The next week we came back from Mother's Day and we talked about how to keep mom from losing her marbles. And we talked about how can we shift the way we do relationships where it's not based on a scarcity mind. Where we think, oh my gosh, we're running out of time and we're running out of resources and ideas. And, but rather it's based on an abundance mind, which is if we do this in Christ, there's no end to the love. There's no end to the resource. We came back the next week, which was last week. And talked about how do you deal with difficult relationships in your family. Because every family I know uh, has some crazy makers in it. <laughs> or as, as it was said last week, people who are like missionaries of misery. right? Who come to make your life crazy. So how do you, how do you love them still and, and keep your faith and your composure and kind of rise to a higher altitude? We've been talking about things that I think matter when it comes to doing families well. And today is no different. Today I want us to talk about dealing with change in the family. Has your family gone through any change? I guarantee you that if you think more than five seconds about it, Every family I know, we all are going through some kind of change. It may be a relational change, or a vocational change. It may be a locational change. It may be that you, you've switched something in the way, and the rhythm that you do life, and it may be even good, but yet the change has created an angst that is a little bit hard to manage. Well, in the classic book, Who Moved My Cheese?, uh, the, the author uh, uh, talks about these, this, this fictional, you know, these four characters, uh, these two mice named uh, Sniff and Scurry, and these two little people um, named uh, Him and 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 Haw, and and they're about the same size. They live in this maze, this huge maze, and. Uh, Sniff and scurry and him and haw live together in this maze and they're looking for cheese. They're looking for for some way to connect and some way to survive. And finally, after searching and searching, they find in the center of the maze is this this big hunk of cheese. And they're all satisfied. And this hunk of cheese is able to provide all the things they need. They're, they're, They're full of satisfaction. They go there every day and they eat to their heart's content. But they don't notice that every day that they go and take from the cheese is slowly disappearing. Until one day when Sniff and Scurry show up to find the cheese in the same place and it's all gone. Well, they don't, it doesn't bug them much. They just, they realize it's time to go Scurry and find some other, other source of cheese. So they run off to look for more cheese. But him and Haw. Well, they show up and they come to the room where the cheese used to be and it's gone. And out of anger, they cry out, who moved my cheese? They didn't see it coming. And it it begins a kind of spiral for them. They begin kind of blaming all of the people around, the reasons why the cheese has been moved, never realizing this thing was coming all along. And I think about who moved my cheese when I think about the reality that you and I deal with change differently. All of us do. Some of us deal with change in a way that is helpful and positive. some, Some people actually look forward to change. Some people rearrange their rooms just because they're tired of the way the furniture looks in it. You paint your house because, well, I'm tired of that color. Some people embrace change and it's exciting, but others, when change comes, even if it's hopeful, good, anticipated change, it can take the air out of your lungs. And do you know why? Because every change is a loss of something. Even if the change is a good change, a positive change that, that is supposed to happen, that you've been planning for and waiting on for a long time, every change is a loss of something. It's a loss of something familiar, something known, something that's comforting. And that kind of loss can feel a little bit the same way it feels when something dies. You know, years ago, uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was the one who introduced to us uh, a way to understand what happens to us when, when someone dies. She introduces the five uh, stages of grief. She said that when someone in our life dies, we go through these five stages. We begin with some denial. There's also some bargaining. There's some anger. There's some depression. Eventually, if things are healthy, well, eventually you begin to accept it, right? Right? And we don't all go through grief in the same way. and We all don't go in the same sequence. But usually we all experience that kind of emotion. We're anger. We we resist it. We're in depression. We're in a fog. And and we don't all go through any of those five in the same kind of way. You know, there are some who actually do what's called anticipatory grief. You, You go through a loss. Something changes. But... But you anticipate the loss way before it even comes. Let's say someone in your life you know um, uh, is dying. And some who do anticipatory grief do all the work ahead of time emotionally so that by the time they get to a funeral, they're steady. They can help the family. They move them through like steady, cool as a cucumber. They anticipate their grief. Others do what's called delayed grief. Which means they're steady, cools a cucumber all the way up through the death. And everybody turns and says, wow, she's really handling this well. So strong, such a rock. And then the funeral happens and everything is, is as it should be. And then maybe like nine months later, a year and a half later, like the family dog dies or the cat dies and all of a sudden they just lose it. I mean like in excessive ways because they've delayed all their grief. And there are some who experience what's called arrested grief, which means you're in one of those stages of loss. The thing has changed. I feel like this loss has come, and I can't get unstuck from one of the stages of anger or depression or, or bargaining. I can't, And that's when we need to make sure that you have the help to get you unstuck and moving in healthy ways through the, through the journey, right? Well, why am I talking about all that on a day when I'm talking about change in the family? Because when your family experiences a significant change, a season of life when you turn the page, it can feel like a death of something. And, and the problem is, we'll go around, we have all these people going around feeling some kind of way about things, and we're just angry all the time and don't know why, or we're in a fog and can't really seem to connect at all, right? Or it may be that we're just depressed and we can't seem to get out of this thing, and, and we've... we're. What we're doing is we've been carrying around these little deaths in our hearts. We've carried around in our soul, in our, our minds, on our shoulders, these little deaths, but we've never called them deaths because we're like, oh, it's just change. It's just a graduation. Oh, it's just a baby's birth. Oh, it's just a new job. Oh, it's just a new address. But we've carried around a sense of loss that can feel very much like death in all of the stages that we experience in death. But here is the here is the news that that I think can transform somebody's life today. If you are going through a season that feels like the change has come and you've lost something, it's as if something in you has died or is dying, I want to tell you, do not forget that we are followers of the risen Christ. And as followers of the risen Christ, we are the people on the planet who have a different way of thinking about things that have died That means no matter what has died, or who has died, or what season has died, or what experience is dying, if you and I look through the eyes of Christ, we see that this God always brings about new life out of the things that have died. This God is is a resurrection God. This God always brings life out of something that has died and I just want you to ask yourself, is there something in me that I have not even maybe given consideration to? All these feelings that I've been carrying because of the change that I've been going through maybe it's because it feels like I'm carrying death around and I want you to dig into your faith and realize that we are people who think of death differently because this God thinks of death differently. God brings new things out of things that He always has. In fact, this is the universal pattern. This is how God put it all together. Perpetual, constant change. Things live, things die, things rise from death. Can you just think for just a moment about all the ways that we see evidence that God does this everywhere around us? There's evidence in your body. There's evidence in the ground beneath your feet. There's evidence in the cosmos all around us. Do you know that right now, inside you, the cells in your body are constantly living, dying, and living again? By the end of today, you will lose 50 to 150 strands of hair. Now, some of you don't have 50 to 150 strands, but you know what I'm saying. Come and work with me, right? You will lose 50 to 150 strands of hair. You will shed 10 billion flakes of skin every day. Every 28 days, therefore, you have a completely new system of skin. That means the skin you have today is not the same skin you had a month ago because of the regenerating kind of power of God to shed and to bring back to life that which we need. There are cells living and dying and living again in you all the time. It's a universal pattern. Do you know that, that while I'm reading this sentence, before I even finish this sentence, 25 million cells have died in you. So if you need to take a minute, you know. But it's, you don't have to worry about it because even though 25 million have died in that one sentence, you will have 300 billion more cells develop before bedtime tonight. Somebody say, Amen. All right. Every 7 to 10 years, therefore, you have a completely new body of cells. The, the entire constitution of your physical body today is different in every, on every cellular level than it was 10 years ago. That means you are a completely different person and yet mysteriously there is something in you that still remembers if you are left-handed or right-handed and what your favorite color is. And if you like the the taste and texture of sautéed spinach. (laughs) In you is the evidence that this is the way God does it. It's constant change. Change always happens. That's how life keeps moving. It's not just in you this evidence. is beneath you. Do you know that this rock that we've been traveling around on, this rock that is um, six billion trillion tons, Well, it has six big tectonic plates and about 20 smaller tectonic plates that are always moving, shifting, sliding, slipping underneath our feet all the time, always. Greenland moves a half inch every year. Greenland is moving a half inch every year, which explains a lot of tripping. So if you go to... Greenland is moving. And it's been this way a long time. Do you know that the, the configuration of our continents, the way they are right now, have only been this way for one half of 1% of history? That means from the, from the very beginning, we have been moving and slipping and sliding. All the change is how it's done. And we're doing this on this big rock that's spinning at about a thousand miles an hour. On its axis, rotating around the sun, at 66,000 miles an hour change. And movement is how it happens. But it's not just evidence in you or underneath you. You know what it is? It's evidence all around us. Do you know that the, the most physicists believe that the, um, the edge of the known universe is about 90 billion trillion, trillion miles away? That's 90 million, 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 million miles away. I don't think either Uber or Lyft go that far. And yet, it's been moving since it began. From the very moment God said, let there be, and then bang! All things in the universe have been moving away from that central moment and that central place. It's called galactic dispersion. I love that. I want a t-shirt that says galactic dispersion. And it's constantly been moving because that's how it happens. And in our little neighborhood, our solar system is moving at 558,000 miles per hour. And we're part of the Milky Way galaxy, which, by the way, it would take you 200 to 250 million years to orbit just the Milky Way galaxy but we are a part of kind of a neighborhood association of other galaxies. It's called a local group. About fifty four other mag- massive galaxies are together. And, and those local groups make up an even larger group called a supercluster. But the whole thing, with billions of other systems like I'm describing, are traveling at 666,000 miles an hour as we speak. So what is the point? Nothing sits still in God's good universe. It is always changing. Always moving. Always growing. Morphing. Do you know that the philosopher Heraclitus, 500 years before the birth of Christ, said this was true? He said this is a... A dynamic universe, not a static universe. Got him in trouble for saying that too. We're constantly moving. He's the one who said the only constant in life is change. He's the one who said no one can, can step in the same river twice because it's not the same river and it's not the same person. If you step in the river once and take your foot out and try to step in the same river again. It's not the same river because it's already moved. His students even came along and said, Teacher, it doesn't go far enough. He says, some of his students says You can't even step into the same river once. Because as soon as you step into the river, the mud, the silt, the, the water, the rocks beneath your feet already shift, and it's already a different, changed river. And yet we resist change as if it's something that we can change. What if we had a different way of looking at the seasons of change that your family is going through? The ancient prophet Isaiah put it this way. He said, See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. And I love the language there. I am doing a new thing. see, I am doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? Here's the problem. Any change that I've gone through in my life that I have resisted is because all I could see at the time is how it has inconvenienced me and brought pain or struggle or sorrow or grief to me. But the scripture that can you see the possibility that in this change that's come, it is, your change is the venue In which God is attempting to do something that God could not have done if things had not changed. See? But the problem is, we don't see. You've heard me quote Richard Rohr before. He's been uh, instrumental in my own spiritual growth and development. One of the most important things I ever heard him say was, we don't lack the presence and action of God in our lives. We don't. We don't lack God's presence, what we lack is the awareness of it. If you and I could be awake to the reality that in all seasons, especially change seasons, God is attempting to be present and active in ways we've never seen before, it would change how we even navigate the journey during those seasons. There's this amazing story in the New Testament. It's in the Gospel of John. And Mary is her name. She saw Jesus crucified on Friday. She saw it happen. And she was, on Friday, Friday was the first day. The second day was Sabbath, so she couldn't go and do anything about it on the Sabbath. But on the third day, which was Sunday, she goes down as soon as she could, early in the morning, to treat the body. She loved him and wanted to care for him now that he has been crucified and is dead. And this is the place where it's the very famous passage where two men are talking to him and they come to her and she says she's weeping. She's weeping because things have changed. Everything was different now. It was changed and and she had lost something and every change is a loss and every loss feels like death and there she is weeping in a graveyard. And the two men come and say, why do you look for the living among the dead? For he is not here. And then she has this conversation with him. They've taken the body of my Lord and I don't know where they've put him. And then she's in this conversation with this guy who she actually thinks is a gardener. She's having an ongoing conversation with a guy who she thinks is working in the garden there and it's the Christ. It's the risen Christ but she can't recognize him through the veil of her sorrow because all she can see is the things she's lost. All she can see is the change that has come and doesn't recognize Resurrection and new life is standing right in front of her. And he says to her, calls her by name Mary. And when she hears the voice that she recognizes in the dialect and the accent that she knows and loves, she says, Ah, Rabbi, Rabuni, she calls him in Aramaic. And she lunges forward to, to cling to him. And then something amazing happens. Jesus says something very awkward. He says, do not touch me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. I mean, and for millennia we debate about what that means theologically, what's the significance of a statement, but I'm not worried about that. I'm, I'm more attracted to the verb at the front of that passage right there, do not touch me. Because in other translations, you know what it says? It says, do not uh, hold on to me. Another translation says, do not cling to me, But if you take the Greek text and do kind of a concrete translation of the Greek, you know what it literally says? Jesus says to her, do not keep on clinging to me. Because Mary, what you've done is you've just revealed you called me rabbi, which is the only version of me that you have ever known. The teacher who said interesting things, the leader who took you to places and performed great signs, you have just revealed that you are thinking of me in the limited way that you have only known. So stop clinging to the, the version of me that you used to know because what you're doing is it's, it's preventing you from actually seeing the possibility of the resurrection who is standing right in front of you. Because at that point, he is so much more than just A resurrected teacher. He is the cosmic Christ. The source of life and resurrection and hope and love and joy. And she says, teacher. You know what I think about our families? I think we have families who are clinging, like Mary, with both hands clinging on to some version of the way the family used to look and feel, some chapter earlier in the history of the family story that was good and wonderful and right and beautiful and filled with satisfaction, and we hang on to that. But naturally, some things have had to die, and in order to experience the new life resurrection of your family, there has to be some letting go of what used to be in order to have open hands for what can be. And I talk to couples about this in counseling, whether it's marital counseling or pre-marriage counseling, or sometimes I even say it at the wedding or in a prayer at the wedding to the couples even. I will say that today you are marrying somebody who God expects to change. And I know that you were attracted to them because of a set of charms and abilities. and There's something that drew you. But I promise you, the one who made her, the one who made him, expects them to change, to grow, to mature. To change their mind, to change their career, to want to live in a different kind of place. And all of the things that, that you're going to see them change, if you don't give them the space to change, then 50 years from now, if you're still together, you will be angry and frustrated and bitter because where is the woman that I married And where is the husband that I thought I was getting married to? But if you can understand that God is always changing us, then it creates a space to provide the grace for one another to grow so that in 50 years you're able to say, look what God has done in our shared life together. See, the story of Mary does one thing. It reminds us that resurrection requires relinquishment resurrection requires relinquishment. And we're like, well, we don't want to relinquish because that feels like we're throwing something away. How am I going to relinquish the best parts of my family that I wish were not changing? That's like I'm throwing it away and ignoring it. No, no, no. Spiritually speaking, theologically speaking, when you relinquish, you're not throwing it away. You're putting it in the hands of God. And you're saying, you can handle this better than I can handle this. So I trust you with the parts of my life that are changing so that empty-handed and open-hearted I can receive whatever way you want resurrection to come to me. Yeah. What is your family going through? Is there some relationship issue, some some change of vocation? Some dynamic? Is it physical? Is it, is it health related? Is it some kind of financial? What is it that, that is causing you to feel like, oh my gosh, this thing is changing and it feels like I've lost something and that loss feels like death? What is it that would take you from feeling like you're only standing in a graveyard weeping because they've taken my family and I know not where they have put it? What would, would it take for you to look up and recognize if I relinquish the thing that is dying, God will show me in my family what God wants to do with all of us. Now there's a very popular prayer called the Serenity Prayer, and it's beautiful. I mean, it's, it's used by so many people across the world, It's used in, in recovery programs. It started out uh, as a, a part of a discipleship group because You and I know the first few lines of this, right? Uh, It sounds like this. The first three lines are basically what we mostly know. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things that I can. And wisdom to know the difference. Isn't that good? It's powerful. But what we don't really recognize is that's what you're going to find on Pinterest. Okay, Those three lines. That's what you're going to find on the wall in, you know, graphic design. It's what you're going to find on bumper stickers. And it works, every word of it true. But there's more to the prayer than that. It was written by Reinhold Niebuhr, a theologian in the 20th century. And here's how it sounds in its wholeness. I want you to think about this as you listen through the ears of change. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can And wisdom to know the difference. But then it continues. The prayer continues. Living one day at a time. Enjoying one moment at a time. Accepting, oh watch this, hardships as the pathway to peace. Taking, as he did, this sinful world as it is and not as I would have it. Trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will. That I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Amen. Isn't that strong? And I just wonder today if somebody here on this campus or somebody who is watching online just needs to hear the encouraging word that all we must learn to do is to relinquish the thing that we grieve into the hands of the one who could do something with it. Let's let that be our prayer today. Join me in prayer. God, we stop for a moment just to acknowledge this is a mystery and we don't understand it. We, we can't wrap our, our head around it. How is it, that, how is it that such supreme loss that can be felt so deeply and that could be so frightening, is the very source of resurrection. You taught us that, that if a seed remains in our hands, then it will only be a seed, but if we have the faith to open our hands and let the seed fall to the ground, and that seed dies, then the seed can burst forth into something new. We pray that if there is any family struggling here this day or any member of any family who is struggling because of a change that you would remind them you are struggling with them that you desire resurrection for them and call them this day lord to relinquish into your care in christ's name we pray amen